0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and this is Episode 32, the Varticleer (laughs) 4, Part 2. If you haven't listened to Part 1 of this case, I strongly recommend you go back and listen to that first. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank an existing Patreon subscriber who's increased his pledge recently, and that is Jacob Lipson. Jacob, thank you so much for your ongoing and now increased support. I really do appreciate it, and it makes a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave links in the show notes. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated. I see a lot of you actively sharing episodes on social media and inviting friends to the Facebook group, and I really appreciate that. So this is the first time I've done a two-parter, and the reason I had to do this case in two parts was because, as I mentioned last week... When I was about to release what was supposed to be just a one-off episode on this case, I discovered some new information. Again, as I said in the last episode, even though this is a victim-focused podcast, or maybe rather because it is a victim-focused podcast, I have to present all the facts that I have. I can't pick and choose what I talk about and what I don't, if I know the information to exist and to be true. So I'm going to present this information to you today, and then I'm going to tell you what I think, and then let you decide for yourself. Let's get into Episode 32, The Varticleer 4, Part 2. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. To recap, last week, four boys who were all 15 and 16 years old at the time of the crime were convicted of murder in the case of a homeless man they'd beaten and stabbed in Moraletta Park. The crime happened in 2001, but would only come to light in 2003 when another boy, who also took part in the crime, confessed to a teacher. There were seven boys involved in the crime, and three agreed to act as state witnesses and were given immunity from prosecution. The other four were sentenced to 12 years in prison. The Wartekloof Four, as they became known, did not deny that they'd beaten a homeless man with their fists and a hammer that night, but their defence was that the deceased man who the state presented as the victim was not the same person they'd assaulted. They continued to claim this despite the fact that the body in question had been found in the same park they'd beaten their victim in the day after the incident took place. The witness that had originally broken the story also said that the group had beaten another man that night, before the one in Moraletta Park. That man, they said, had been outside a gym in Constantia Park, and they'd beaten him up after leaving a club in Hatfield. The Watercloor 4 adamantly denied that they had beaten more than one man that night, so the state had to prove that the four men had firstly beaten a man in Constantia Park that they denied beating, and who also never laid a charge or had never been found, and secondly, that the man they admitted to assaulting had also been the same man whose dead body was found in the park. Well, the judge found them guilty, saying that it seemed impossible that the man they had beaten that night had gotten up and walked away survived without seeking medical attention, and then that completely separate man had laid down in the same park on the same night and died, but his death was not related to them. I have to say that it does sound like a pretty ridiculous coincidence, as far as coincidences go. So imagine my surprise when I found two websites, one by a journalist called Kevin King, and another by a gentleman called Charles Skippers. Both of those sites and articles presented information that proposed that, perhaps, the judge had not made the right decision. Now, media coverage on this case was skewed, in my opinion. There was very little information presented about the crime itself, and many journalists seemed to prefer to focus on the four perpetrators and what shoes they were wearing with their expensive suits. Even less information was presented about the victim, as, of course, he was unidentified and remains so to this day. On one of these sites, I found the autopsy report of the victim, and I was quite surprised by what I read. So remember, this autopsy was held on an unidentified body, when police still had no idea about any involvement of four young local boys. They wouldn't know that for another 18 months. The pathologist was therefore simply performing an autopsy on a man in an attempt to establish cause of death. The autopsy report is in Afrikaans. And addressed to the magistrates in Pretoria, it's typed on A4 pages, and headed by a death register number, which is two four three nine slash two thousand and one. It starts off with the name of the pathologist. Quote, I, Elida Elizabeth van der Hoeven, do certify that on the fourth day of December two thousand and one, I observed and investigated. Body of an adult black male. The body was identified to me by Sergeant Labiesa of the Forensic Laboratory in Pretoria as DR 2439 2001, and that the body was certified as unidentified on the 10th of October 2002. So there's our first discrepancy. Original media articles stated that the unidentified victim was only held in the mortuary for 30 days before being buried as an unidentified person in an unmarked grave. Well, actually, the man was kept for almost a year before police seemingly realized there was a good chance they were not going to be able to identify him, and he was buried. In a sad irony, the young witness would confess, Just six months later, the pathologist goes on to say that, quote, at the time of the autopsy, the adult man presented with two lacerations to the scalp, as well as a puncture wound to the right side, where the wound tract is so deep in the muscle that the femur shaft is exposed. There is also subdural hematoma on the right-hand side of the skull, and the organs are strikingly pale. Due to severe blood loss. It is as a result of this that I have determined that the cause of death is a puncture wound to the right thigh with serious blood loss in a man with a right-sided subdural hematoma. End quote. Now, just to clarify, when the pathologist refers to a subdural hematoma, she is referring to a collection of blood outside the brain. And inside the skull. This usually occurs as a result of a head injury. The first page is signed off and then we move into the rest of the report, which describes the victim's body and appearance. This is the first time we actually get to hear any personally identifying information about the victim in this case. The victim was 1.7 meters tall and weighed 59 kilograms. Although his body condition was described as slim, his nutritional condition is described as satisfactory. The victim had tattoos of the word Raphae, Rafae R A F A E and Rambo on the top half of his left forearm. A dollar sign was also tattooed on his right forearm and also the word Mumba With a picture of a snake. The man presented with several scars on his lower legs and also on his scalp. The victim was clothed in a tracksuit top, a windbreaker, a checkered shirt and shorts. The man had a shaved head and pieces of grass were still evidence clinging to his face. On his head he presented with a clearly visible large laceration The wound was three centimetres by one centimetre and there were another two lacerations on his scalp, which were two centimetres long. These two had already started scabbing over though, so they were old wounds. The puncture wound on the back of the victim's thigh, which was believed to be the cause of death, was four centimetres by two centimetres. It's described as a clean wound With sharp edges and both edges of the wound around it. As the pathologist goes on to describe each area of the body and organs, she notes that most of the organs are extremely pale, which is as a result of the blood loss. She notes that the skull is intact and there are no abnormalities, including no fractures. The victim's eyes, Nose and nostrils show no visible damage. His mouth, tongue and pharynx also showed no visible damage. The victim was found with a wallet with money in it, but unfortunately no ID. He was wearing good quality clean shoes, a watch and a ring. Let's go back to the assault that the Varticle 4 admitted to committing that night. Firstly, this victim has continuously been called a homeless man in the media. I even called him a homeless man, because that was the narrative. Now, I don't want to generalise, but most homeless people don't have great quality clothing. This man was wearing a shirt, a tracksuit top, and a windbreaker. Which strikes me as odd, considering he was wearing shorts. December in South Africa is summer, so temperatures in Pretoria would range between seventeen and twenty nine degrees Celsius. A tracksuit top at nights, maybe. A tracksuit top and a windbreaker and a shirt? Probably overkill. The man was also wearing good quality shoes, and all of his clothing was clean. He was wearing jewellery and had a wallet with money in it. Again, I don't want to generalise, but unless he was really recently homeless, that doesn't sound like a person living on the streets to me. A homeless person would very likely not be displaying jewellery, as he'd be setting himself up for a mugging. The Vorticler 4 claimed that the man they attacked that night had just broken into a nearby house and he was running away with the television. So is it possible that if this was the same man and he was running away after breaking into a house, maybe he was wearing all of those jackets on purpose? If someone put out a description of a man in a red jacket, it would be easier to hide oneself If you could just take the jacket off, toss it in the bushes, and hey presto, you're wearing a tracksuit top. Or was he wearing all of those clothes because he was homeless, and he had nowhere to keep his clothing without them getting stolen? Now that we have knowledge of the injuries that the victim had incurred, let's go back and compare that to what the Vartekloor 4 said they did to their victim. All the witnesses, and four accused, told a similar tale about the attack. They used a hammer, which they struck the victim with twice on the back of his head. Many punches were thrown to various areas of the body, and the victim was kicked many times as well. One of the accused confirmed that he had kicked the victim in the face, twice, with steel-capped shoes, so hard that the metal on the shoes bent. The accused four denied that they'd stabbed their victim, though, or ever been in possession of knives. And this is where I start to get a bit confused, because the autopsy we just looked at does not match up with what the witnesses or the four accused said they did. If someone kicks you in the face, twice, with steel-capped shoes, and dents that metal with your face. That is going to leave behind some serious injuries. Your mouth is going to be damaged, you'll probably lose teeth, and you may even have a broken nose. Our victim did not have a single mark on his face. He was supposed to have been hit twice in the back of the head with a hammer. The autopsy noted no damage to the skin, muscles or bone in this area. He had a slight hematoma, but that was on the right side of the head. This man had four strong young men pile into him, punching, kicking, slapping, but he didn't have a single bruise, according to the autopsy. The victim essentially bled to death. Whatever punctured the back of his thigh went in deep and left a large, gaping wound, causing him to bleed out. Now, the following information was not in the autopsy reports, but it was testified to in court. Two experts were called to testify about what they thought could have caused the penetrating injury that led to the man's death. One testified that it could possibly have been a knife, and another testified that it was highly unlikely that the wound was caused by a knife, because of the size of the wound and its depth. This expert witness was asked whether the wound could have been caused by a spike on a palisade fence, and he agreed that it was indeed possible. Although the victim bled to death, his femoral artery was not severed. So it's alleged that he would have bled to death over a period of 24 to 48 hours. He was estimated to have lost 4 to 5 litres of blood. Two people who've viewed the crime scene photos say that there was very little blood present in the park. The state would go on to say that it had rained during the time that the body had lain in the park and this could have washed the blood away. Moraletta Park had three millimetres of rain over that period. One would think that it's hardly enough to wash away every trace of four to five litres of blood. If it had washed away the blood around him, the blood underneath his body would still be there. But there was no blood there either. And then the strangest part of all. The blood from the victim's wound had run up his leg towards his groin blood doesn't tend to defy gravity so that means his leg must have been elevated at the time the wound was bleeding according to witnesses the man was laying flat on his back with both legs flat when he'd been stabbed firstly it would be difficult to stab someone in the back of their thigh when they're laying flat on the ground And secondly, it's also highly unlikely that he lifted his legs in the air so that the blood could flow towards his groin after being stabbed. There is another option, though, and this is just something I considered anyone involved in the case alluded to. Let's say for a moment that this man had broken into a house in the area. If he'd slipped while trying to get back over a palisade fence. It is quite possible that he could have impaled his thigh on the fence, fallen backwards while still stuck on the fence, and that was the point at which the blood flowed up his leg and toward his groin. Even then there are two options. Did he hang suspended from the palisade for a period of time while bleeding? I find that unlikely, as I think that the autopsy would have shown tearing and dragging in the wound as the palisade spike ripped through his leg. So the other option is that he dislodged himself, fell to the ground, and lay there with his legs up against the fence and his back on the ground. If he did fall, this could also be the point at which he bumped his head and caused the hematoma on the right side of his skull. Did a resident come out of his house the next morning and find a man having bled to death in his garden? Would it be reasonable that such a person would then transport that body to the nearest park and dump it there? From what the crime scene photos are saying, this man did not bleed to death in that park. From the autopsy results, it also seems highly unlikely that he was the victim of a vicious assault either. So who is this man, and was his death a case of misadventure, or was he indeed stabbed? One of the sources I looked at speculated that the direction of blood flow could indicate that the man was dragged into the park, but I don't know about that, because that means that the wound would still be actively bleeding during this time, and although it's possible that the man was already unconscious and still actively bleeding... It seems unlikely to me. Apparently there was a car radio found close to the body as well, which indicates that it is possible this man was involved in some sort of crime that night. The Valterclerc 4 said that their victim was carrying a TV when they spotted him. 24 to 48 hours is a pretty long time to just lay somewhere and bleed to death. Now bear in mind that all of this evidence was presented in court. No one was hiding this evidence. But the public didn't get to hear about it because most of it simply wasn't reported. When the judge handed down his judgments, he addressed the discrepancies between the autopsy report and the witness and accused testimonies and cited a prior case. The State v. Bernardus 1965. In that case, a quote, the body is full of anomalies and that sometimes death can be caused by the slightest of assaults. End quote. He used this to explain his decision. One of the reasons that the judge made the decision that he did is that there was no evidence of the existence of the victim that the Varticleer four claimed to have assaulted. So, by default, it had to be the dead man in the park. Well, that's not entirely true either. Again, one of the sources I found presents an admission form for Mamalodi Hospital, dated 02-12-2001. At close to 1am that morning, a man stumbled into Mamalodi Hospital looking for help. The admission sheet lists the reason for admission as assault, and lists some of the injuries as lacerations to the head and back. The man was booked in under the name Peter Maseko, and he was treated and released. Unfortunately the address he gave was incorrect, so he could not be tracked down. Was this the Varticleur 4's actual victim? Did he indeed manage to get himself to a hospital, receive treatment, and recover? Or is it just a coincidence, completely unrelated? Now, with regard to the first assault that the Vatiklo 4 denied ever happened, the only evidence of this was the testimony of the state witness, and even that was rather sketchy. At one stage, the prosecutor admitted that the judge should probably keep in mind that the first alleged assault may have actually occurred on a different night. The defense presented telephone records, which indeed put the group in Moraletta Park that night, but that was not in dispute. What didn't make sense, according to the times that their phones pinged on several towers, was that the two cars would have had to have left Hatfield, drive to Constantia Park, which was not on their route home, fit in time to stop at a convenience shop, which they did, and then manage to get to Maroletta Park in time to assault the victim in question. They would have had only 14 minutes to do all of that. According to Google Maps, it takes 14 minutes just to drive from Hatfield to Constantia Park, and then another seven minutes to drive from Constantia Park to Moraletta Park. Based on those timelines, they're already seven minutes behind, without stopping to assault someone or buy milk. The Wartekloor 4's version of events actually made a lot more sense with the timeline, but because they'd hidden the Moraletta Park incident, and they were deemed to be deceitful, the judge did not accept their evidence. We know, of course, that the four were found guilty, and that two appeals were unsuccessful. And that is the sum of the information I uncovered on the two sides. Both of the men who presented these opinions felt that the of four should not have been found guilty, If I look at the evidence in the first Constantia Park assault, I have to say that it seems unlikely that the assault occurred that night. The timeline doesn't really seem to fit. I do, however, think that it is entirely possible that it happened on another night. This group of boys had it in their heads that driving around the area assaulting people was the thing to do and I do think that it happened on more than one occasion. I don't have any proof of that, though, but even the prosecutor didn't seem sure in the end. The Moraletta Park assault and murder is very clearly no longer so clear. When I first saw this evidence, I thought, well, maybe the autopsy was not done very thoroughly and they missed things, Reading through the autopsy, it seems to have been done pretty thoroughly. I also considered that maybe they were rushed or decomposition had masked the bruises, but this wasn't the case either. The autopsy was performed the day after the body was found, and although decomposition would have already started from the moment the man's heart stopped, it would not have been so advanced two days after his death, as to make the autopsy difficult. To be honest, for that pathologist, the body probably wouldn't have presented as someone who was murdered. The back of the thigh is a very odd place to stab someone, and indeed no expert witness was willing to say that the wound was actually caused by a knife. I will say, then I really don't think this victim was homeless. And if the man the Varticleer four assaulted really was homeless, as they said, it may make more sense that it was Peter Maseko, the patient at Mamalodi Hospital, who gave a fake address. The rest of the evidence is just strange. The lack of blood at the scene, the blood flowing against gravity, I don't know. I'm not even willing to hazard a guess on that, but I would love to hear your take on it. The Valticloor 4 were not innocent. They did assault a man that night, and the viciousness of that assault, the hammer blows alone, in my opinion, make it seem unlikely he just got up and walked away. I can't ignore that a lot of this evidence doesn't match, though. And so we're left with a dilemma Is it okay that four men spent time in prison and were found guilty of a murder that they may not have committed, on the basis that they very likely murdered someone else? Some may say that, well, we know they did something that night, so even if this isn't their victim, it's not like it's really a travesty of justice. Well, that's a slippery slope we're supposed to assume that people are innocent until proven guilty. When the state lays a charge against a citizen of this country, the onus is supposed to be on them to prove their case, beyond a shadow of a doubt. If we start accepting sentences for people when the evidence is as hazy as this, do we have a right to complain when the system doesn't put away other people? As they say, it's not about what you know, it's about what you can prove. Is it likely that the state witness lied about the knives and the stabbing? That doesn't seem likely to me, but stranger things have happened when people are under pressure. Let's for a moment not think about the perpetrators, and think instead about the victim. And here I want to be really clear. Even if this victim was breaking into houses on the night he died, that makes absolutely no difference. If anyone wants to cry injustice in the trial against these four, then they cannot also victim blame. Those two don't go together. If he was breaking into houses, and he was a victim of the Varticleer 4, they had absolutely no right to do what they did. He was not on their property. He was not threatening them, or anyone else, and he was fleeing. Could they have restrained him and called the police? Absolutely. If they had, they wouldn't have wasted ten years of their lives. Was this victim even murdered, though? Well, it's unlikely he bled out five litres of blood somewhere and then found his way to the park on his own. Let's face it this case is not going back to trial. The Varticleer 4 are not going to have their convictions reversed, unless someone walks into a police station and says that he is actually the guy they assaulted that night. But then, he'd have to prove it. Although, the levels of burden of proof in this case don't seem to be terribly high. As strange as this entire case is, It doesn't change the fact that someone died. It doesn't change the fact that regardless of who he was in life, someone loved him and he still ended up as body number DR 2439 slash 2001. It is the fact that this man had four tattoos that makes it so strange to me that he was never matched up with a missing person report. Unless he was never reported missing, which makes it even more sad. Let's face it, our justice system is far from perfect, and innocent people get convicted of crimes in our country and all over the world every day. On the other hand, sometimes things happen precisely the way they're meant to. And maybe coincidences aren't all that coincidental, After all. So that, ladies and gentlemen, is the twist in the tale. I hope it blew your mind as much as it blew mine, and that you're going to have all the possibilities running around in your head for days, because I'd hate to be alone in that. I would love to hear your views on the case. You can weigh in on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on the app you're using to listen right now. I'll be back next Friday. Until then, as always, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.